This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. But tonight, we're not talking about politics directly, at least. Um, we're talking about food. Um, the title of this lecture is, It Was Meant to Be Good, Becoming More Human in the Kitchen and at the Table. And I want to begin with a little bit of Labri lore that has come down to me through Nikayla, um from uh, a friend of ours, a close friend of Nikayla's, and a woman who was a mentor to both of us during our time in Vancouver at Regent College, a woman named Thena Ayers, who spent time at the Swiss Labri, whose mother also spent time at the Swiss Labri with Edith Schaefer. And the story goes that when people would, mmm, mmm, oh, this is so good, to Mrs. Schaefer's meals, she would say, it was meant to be good. <laughs> I made it for you. And <clears throat> that um, response strikes me as, as profoundly right. I have to say I haven't quite... Um, I don't know, garnered the confidence to respond that way every time someone says, this is so good, um, I still default to thank you, or I'm glad you're enjoying it. Um, but tonight I want to think about the fact that food was meant to be good. Um, and it's meant to be good because it's personal. It was made for you. Um, the other... A uh, piece, couple pieces that I want to say in preface is um, when I I think of what it might mean to become more human, um, I want to be clear from the outset that I'm not speaking about becoming more than human. Um, that's exactly the error around food that our first. Uh, parents, Adam and Eve, made to, to try to use food to become more than human. Um, so we're not speaking about becoming more than human, but really becoming more human, more fully human. And um, while humanness means many things, and we can talk a lot about that, um, being a human means being a companionship of body and spirit. Um, being in the earth and filled with the breath of God. We are inspirited bodies. We are both tangible and intangible. Um, and I don't think we can get around those facts, try though we may. Um, the founder of the Dutch Libri, Hans Ruckmacher, said, um, in an essay that had nothing to do with food. <laughs> but I, I think something that, that has just stuck in my head and I've come back to again and again, he said, 
You cannot be more than what you are. Be afraid to be less. And I think that is something um, that inspires me um, when I think about what it means to be more human. Um, because it's easy for us to slip into being far less than human. Um, in a lecture on the five themes of Libri, uh, Ben has mentioned that often the phrase, oh, I'm only human, is used uh, in response to error, mistake, shortcoming, moral failure, as if really the deepest truth about being human was uh, to not really be all that much at all, um, which is kind of profoundly backward. Um, so let's think about being fully human tonight. Um, and then thirdly, my other main objective is to commend to you this book, The Supper of the Lamb by Robert Farrar Capon. Um, those of you who are staying here have been hearing me talk about this for a couple of weeks now. Um, if you have not read this book, go and check it out from the library this week and enjoy. I will be reading some fairly long passages from it, so you'll get a good taste of it tonight, um, which I hope will appetize you to then really sink your teeth into it um, in weeks to come. I would call this book, um, in poetry, there's a tradition um, of poems, a kind of a whole class, uh, class of poems called Ars Poetica, which means the art of poetry, poems that are about what poetry should be. I think this is something of an Ars Poetica of cooking and eating. Um, and it's well worth your time. Um, and in this book, he really addresses this tendency of ours to be less than fully human, to over-spiritualize or under-materialize our existence. Um, it was first published in 1967 and then was reissued in 1989 and in 2002. And in the preface <clears throat> to the second and third editions, where is it here? There we go. Um, Capon speculates on the reasons why what he, he describes this book as a seemingly indigestible mixture of cookery and theology. Um, and he speculates on why this has proved so palatable to so many people. <laughs> First, because in this book, neither cookery nor theology are excuses for getting at the other. He says, I have tried to address myself full force to both subjects. And second, he says, the major reason I think this improbable combination of cookery and theology has proved successful is that there is a habit that plagues many so-called spiritual minds. They imagine that matter and spirit are somehow at odds with each other, 
and that the right course for human life is to escape from the world of matter into some finer and purer and undoubtedly duller realm. To me, that is a crashing mistake. And it is, above all, a theological mistake. Because, in fact, it was God who invented dirt, onions, and turnip greens. <laughs> God who invented human beings with their strange compulsion to cook their food. God, who at the end of each day of creation pronounced a resounding good over his own concoctions. And it is God's unrelenting love of all the stuff of this world that keeps it in being at every moment. So if we are fascinated, even intoxicated by matter, it is no surprise we are made in the image of the ultimate materialist. <laughs> you hear his tongue-in-cheek there in that last line. Well, um, food, when we'll get it, how we'll get it, how much we'll get whether or not we'll like it, these preoccupations and even occupations comprise a very large part of our time, albeit less time than it did for our ancestors. Um, as a central feature of our lives, it deserves our reflection and our action. So, when we eat... And how we eat being essential to our existence is one of the most common and perhaps most mired qualities of human life. I would wager that not one of us in this room is without food issues. And not <laughs> one of us has an uncomplicated, much less right way of eating in which we are to which we are unerringly faithful who here hasn't like frog and toad if you were at wednesday breakfast wanted to eat the whole bowl of cookies <laughs> and who here hasn't when they piously passed up the cookies thought themselves a little better than those who went back for a third or a fourth or a fifth cookie who hasn't rummaged in the cupboard, not out of hunger, but boredom. And who hasn't monitored how much of what, when, and from whom, and how, not for any real health reasons, but rather to hold on to some sense of control over life when it feels out of control. Toddlers do as much. Any lecture on food needs to acknowledge, and I'm, I'm acknowledging the complexities that go um, beyond um, what I will address tonight and that really do impact our personal food issues. The vast and complicated nature of our current 
food production system and the persistent global inequalities that we would perhaps prefer not to think about when we sit down at the end of the day um, are also in the background. Questions of industrial-scale farming that involves monocrops and soil depletion, insecticide use, genetically modified or genetic modification, unkind and mechanistic treatment of animals, as well as questions of inequitable distribution and lack of access to real food, what um, are often called food deserts in low-income areas of our country and in, in countries around the world. All these dynamics are at play in the background of this lecture um, and any attempt to expound on the goodness of food. And we can come back to those um, questions in the discussion if you'd like. The main question I want to ask, a sort of narrow path that I hope to cut through uh, this vast forest that is worth our exploration is how might a Christian live her baptism, her death, burial, and resurrection with Christ in how she eats? How might a graced way of eating look? Now, our individual circumstances will require us to come to different answers on how, how we answer that question. In this room, there are medical realities, there are allergies, there are, I'm told, genetically determined aversions <laughs> to cilantro. <laughs> There are histories with food um, that include addictions and excesses and deprivations, some that have been self-imposed and some not. And I will not and cannot, and I would not dare to try, cover all the bases. Um, but I do hope to respond to this question, how might a graced way of eating look? in a way that lays a, a gracious and spacious foundation upon which you might build the house of your own cooking and eating for yourself and for those you love. I think this is what Capon does in Supper of the Lamb. So what might a graced way of cooking and eating look like? It will look like feasting and fasting. By our fasting, it will look like the slow but steady work of God's love for this world. And by our feasting, it will look like the hope that the greatest feast, the marriage supper of Christ, the Lamb of God, is coming. And we are invited. Throughout his book, Capon makes a case for cooking fancy and eating plain. In other words, for a recovery or maybe a discovery for the first time 
of the goodness of rhythms of fasting and feasting, ordinary eating and extraordinary eating. So first, fasting. We are not um, far from the holiday season. And uh, after 12 days of Christmas feasting, after Joshua and the kids and I had said goodbye to his parents and goodbye to my parents, I made a pot of miso ginger broth. And I bought kale and Swiss chard and baby bok choy and all the green things that I could find because I was quite literally hungry for something simple after all of the treats and sweets and rich foods of Christmastide. So to be clear straight off, I did not do this to launch a diet the day after my parents left town. By fasting, I'm not advocating for dieting. Dieting as a way of life uh, too often results in a roller coaster of excesses and deprivations and ultimately, I think, an anxious and fearful disposition toward food. Long lists of good food and bad food and declarations like, I'm going to be bad and have dessert. <laughs> or, hold the dressing, I'm trying to be good. <laughs> and these lists are liable to change decade after decade, depending on whatever the kind of prevailing health opinions are at the time. You can take the butter versus margarine controversy of a couple decades ago, or the incrimination of eggs, um, and the promotion of fortified and very sugary breakfast cereals. To be fair, I think that there is a great deal of cultural anxiety around food. And I don't think this is an easy anxiety to shake. Um, in an article that I read um, in preparation for this lecture, I came across this observation um, a society in which companies keep introducing new food products must be deeply uncomfortable with the way it eats. <laughs> and that strikes me as accurate. <clears throat> but um, before we can say what fasting is, we need to say what it is not. And it's not dieting. And Capon has a lot to say about dieting. <clears throat> and in something of a clearing of the ground before he gives a recipe and instruction on how to make noodles, he writes this. And you can settle in. I'm going to read for a bit. I hear this as something of an homage to C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters. <clears throat> Scene one, hell. 
There was a day when Satan took counsel with his chief tempters. What, he asked the assembly, the assembled principalities and powers, what are we doing to hasten the dehumanization of man? One by one they reported. Formidable senior vice presidents in charge of envy, pride, and avarice gave glowing accounts. The chiefs of the bureaus of lust and sloth read lengthy bills of particulars. Satan, however, was not pleased. Even the brilliant report of the head of the War Department failed to satisfy him. He listened restively to the long treaties on nuclear proliferation. He fiddled with pencils during the section on the philosophy of the brushfire war. Finally, Satan's wrath overcame him. He swept his notes from the table and leapt to his feet. Self-serving declarations, he roared. Am I doomed to sit forever listening to idiots try to hide incompetence behind verbiage? Has no one anything new? Are we to spend the rest of eternity minding the store we have for a thousand years? At that point... The youngest tempter rose. With your permission, my lord, he said, I have a program. And as Satan sat down again, he launched into his proposal for an interdepartmental bureau of desubstantialization. He claimed that the dehumanization of man was going so slowly because the infernal strategy had failed to cut man off from one of the chief bulwarks of his humanity. In concentrating on offenses against God and neighbor, it had failed to corrupt his relationship to things. Things, the tempter declared, by their provision of unique delights and individual astonishments constituted a continuous refreshment of the very capabilities hell was at pains to abolish. As long as man dealt with real substances, he would himself tend to remain substantial. What was needed, therefore, was a program to deprive man of things. Satan took evident interest. But, he objected, how shall we proceed in an affluent society? Man has more things than ever. Are you saying that in the midst of such abundance he simply will not notice so bizarre a plot? Not quite, my lord said the tempter. I do not mean to take anything from him physically. Instead, we shall encourage him mentally to alienate himself from reality. I propose that we contrive a systematic substitution of abstractions, diagrams, and spiritualizations for actual things. Man must be taught to see things as symbols, must be trained to use them for effect, never for themselves. Above all, the door of delight must remain firmly closed. It will not, he continued, be as difficult as it seems. 
men are so firmly convinced that they are materialists that they will believe anything before they suspect us of contriving their destruction by spiritualization. By way of a little insurance, however, I have taken the liberty of arranging for an army of preachers who will continue, as in the past, to thunder against them for being materialists. They will be so busy feeling delightfully wicked that nobody will notice the day when we finally cut them loose from reality altogether. And at that, Satan smiled, sat back, and folded his hands. Good, he said. Let the work go forward. Scene two, a dinner party. What can we give you, Harry? Large helping or small? If it's all the same to you, Martha, just a little of the chicken paprikash, no noodles. I'm counting calories. Capon continues, there are, to be sure, greater blasphemies than that against the goodness of creation, but none illustrates better the fundamental anti-materialism of the age. Harry sits in front of one of the finest and simplest goods in the world, and he begs off. Not because he does not like it, but because he has ceased to see it. Noodles, for him, are not unique and delightful beings. They have become an abstract subject called highly caloric food. (laughs) Real eating, Capon contends, will restore Harry's sense of the festivity of being. Dieting, we might say, often obscures the festivity of being. Capon continues, food does not exist merely for the sake of its nutritional value. To see it so is only to knuckle under still further to the desubstantialization of man, to regard not what things are, but what they mean to us, to become, in short, solemn idolaters, spiritualizing what should be loved as matter. A man's daily meal ought to be an exaltation over the smack of desirability which lies at the roots of creation. To break Real bread is to break the loveless hold of hell upon the world. And by just that much, to set the secular free. So, friends, I offer you some real bread. (laughs) Feel free to take a piece and pass it round. It is homemade sourdough bread. Um, there's no conventional yeast in it, if that makes this more available to you. You really cannot have wheat, then I'm sorry. <laughs> I'll pass more if need be, too.
So fasting is not dieting. Now, to what fasting is. I had time to make bread because my husband made all the other food this week. Thank you. (laughs) And we scoured the freezer and we put together an interesting combination of things for dinner tonight. (laughs) Is there enough that made it all the way to the back row? Good. Okay. So, if fasting is not dieting, um, what is it? Well, Capon says this, by fasting, and this is maybe more of an answer of what fasting does than what it is exactly, but by fasting, Harry will, we will, be delivered from the hopelessness of mere gourmandise which is just a relishing in all the fine foods that you can have. Thank you. The secular, for all its goodness, does not defend itself very well against mindless and perpetual consumption. It cries out to be offered by abstinence as well as use. To be appreciated, not simply absorbed. Hunger remains the best sauce. And he says, the real secret of fasting is not that it's a simple way to keep one's weight down, but that it is a mysterious way of lifting creation into the supper of the lamb. It's not a little excursion into fashionable shape, but a major entrance into the fasting, the agony, the passion by which the incarnate word restores all things to the goodness God finds in them. It is as much an act of prayer as prayer itself. In a lecture on fasting that Joshua gave, he said, fasting is praying with your body. And in an affluent society, Capon says, it may well be the most meaningful of all the practices of religion, which is a big statement, the most likely point at which the salt can find its savor once again. Let Harry fast in earnest, therefore. One way or another, here or hereafter, it will give him back his feasts. Feasts are lost in mere gourmandise, unrestrained enjoyment of foods, just as fasts are lost in dieting. Fasting, then, and not dieting for the sake of the world, for the sake of our own sanity, for a healthy unbalancing 
of our daily and weekly food intake. Fasting because things are not yet as they should be, but they will be. Fasting because we need our palates cleansed, our hunger peaked, and our senses heightened. Fasting because Jesus gave us bread, the most basic of foods, that staff of life we can lean on, by which to remember and anticipate him. So there are many practicalities to be considered about fasting, and we can discuss this further in the discussion if you'd like. Um, For starters, fasting whole meals on a regular basis may seem like a big leap to you, as it does for me. But, you say, not all men are ready for such heroic discipline, writes Capon. Even supposing that they were willing to fast, they are too far gone in the ways of the world to leave it flat. Is there no middle way, no intermediate course of eating through which they might approach perfection by degrees? (laughs) Of course there is, he says. If you do not feel up to a single meal a day, begin by reducing all meals but one to the starkest possible simplicity. Take breakfast, for example. Now, before I get into more of what he has to say about breakfast, I will just tell you that I was both amused and a little miffed to find that Capon agrees with Joshua (laughs) on this point. Um, Both about, well, more about how the meal should be taken than what, perhaps. But um, in regard to the how... We've been married for a little over 11 years, and it was probably, he thinks it was longer than I do, I'm going to say halfway, you know, like five years or so, into our marriage, that um, in a moment of exasperation, he said, can we please eat breakfast alone, as in not with each other, or our children, (laughs) or my parents, who we were living with at the time, and... And though I was a little resistant to this initially, um, I have come to side with my husband, and and it turns out with Capon. Oh, I didn't give myself my page number. Let's see. All right. So. Um. Begin thinking as you hear this about both the what is being recommended for eating and the how. The alone and then the the simplicity here. I think both of these are in the, the realm of fasting for considerations. So, he says, If you do not feel up to a single meal a day, begin by reducing all meals but one to the starkest possible simplicity. Take breakfast, for example. Americans already have one leg on fasting as far as their morning meal is concerned. If it were not for the propaganda of the horse-fed barons, most of us would probably be more than content with fruit and coffee. Anyone who finds he really needs more 
can always take bread and butter, or cheese. How much better it would be than the daily self-deception that 240 calories worth of rolled wheat chaff or powdered protein will make a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. That kind of thinking only makes him a setup for another day of idolatry. To begin with, breakfast is an unmerciful meal. Unless you live in a house full of larks, you know perfectly well that few people are fit company at that hour. <laughs> Accordingly, a completely routine meal, unvarying from day to day, is a blessing to everyone. The mistress of the house is responsible for nothing more than brewing decent coffee and keeping fruit juice and bread on hand. Moreover, the rest of the family is freed from the burden of decision. Breakfast is a time to be left alone with one's thoughts. To have to face an array of boxes and a barrage of <laughs> arguments about whose favorite style of eggs will be forced on everybody else is simply too much. <laughs> Or, as it often plays out in our house, three different pans cooking all of the types of eggs is simply too much. <laughs> Breakfast may be toast and coffee. It may also be eaten alone. So this raises another question um, about not only what we eat, but how we eat. Um, eating alone. For some of you, like Joshua, this sounds like a welcome bit of simplicity and quiet in what can be a very peopled life. Even here at Labrie, we have recently made Saturday breakfast optional and self-serve to provide a little opportunity for what we might think of as a fast from the company of others. For others of you, being alone is the norm, and it is particularly punctuated at mealtimes. It may even be the reason you do not like to cook. Cooking, for one, is difficult, and it's not as fun, perhaps. To be sure, eating alone, whether desirable or undesirable mm. to us, is an occasion that reminds us that we are singular individuals who are meant um, for one another. Individuals, but not meant for individualism. Our aloneness and our fundamentally relational nature are twin realities about our humanness. How might we be more human when we eat alone? For starters, and to lift even our solitary eating into the supper of the lamb, as Capon writes, we can sit down when we eat. I think one way that we avoid our aloneness when eating is by eating on the go, 
or eating standing up while doing other things, um, as if we're trying to avoid the fact uh, that we are alone and it is time to eat. But sitting down to a meal alone, however simple, gives the opportunity to face all of our hungers, the hunger of our bodies and the hunger of our spirit, our hunger for deep and meaningful relationships, for belonging to another as they belong to us. After I graduated from college, I lived in the Czech Republic for two years, teaching English, and it was both one of the most formative times uh, of life and one of the most difficult. And one of the things that I found especially hard was cooking for myself and eating, often alone. And... Um, while it was also the time that I learned to make soup, for real, that was a good thing, it was strange to make a pot of soup for yourself. Um, so I started, uh, I don't know what gave me the idea, but I think it, it was my hunger, all of my hungers, that prompted me to begin setting the table for myself and for one other who would not be there in body, um, and to sit down to a meal alone and to risk feeling a bit silly and to risk um, risk praying that Jesus would be present with me at that meal. And I was truly and deeply met by Jesus at the table um, in those meals. And I wish that I'd had a prayer that I now have for Meals Alone at that time. And this is a liturgy before a meal eaten alone, written by Doug McKelvey. Tell your dad we read one of his prayers tonight. You created us for companionship, O God, for the sharing of burdens, for the joining of celebrations, for the breaking of bread in fellowship. And so it is not unnatural that we should taste a particular sorrow when eating a meal alone. Sit with me and linger at this solitary table, O Lord. Sit with me as my father. Sit with me as my brother. Sit with me as my shepherd. Sit with me as my friend. In the absence of human companions, may I know more fully your presence. In this silence where there is no conversation, may I know, may I hear more clearly your voice. Use my own momentary loneliness to work in me a more effectual sympathy for others who are often alone and who long for the companionship of their God and his people. 
Let me afterward be more intentional in the practice of hospitality. Let me sometimes be the reason the loneliness of another is relieved. Meet me now in my own loneliness, O Lord. Meet me in this meal. I receive it as your provision for my life in this hour. Amen. So our fasting is a fasting um, of what? Of certain foods, maybe? How much? It may also be um, a fasting from the company of others. But when we feast, we feast, we eat in company, and we eat abundantly. For those of you who are guests here right now, we um, watched Babette's Feast on Wednesday. For those of you who are not guests here, I recommend that film to you. Um, That little community knew how to fast, but they did not know how to feast. And that uh, neglect... um, was a dehumanizing force among them. They needed to be more human by learning how to feast. The dinner party, writes Capon, is a true proclamation of the abundance of being, a rebuke to the thrifty little idolatries by which we lose sight of the lavish hand that made us. It is precisely because no one needs soup, fish, meat, salad, cheese, and dessert at one meal that we so badly need to sit down to them from time to time. It was largesse that made us all. We were not created to fast forever. The unnecessary is the taproot of our being and the last key of the door to the door of delight. The unnecessary is the taproot of our being and the last key to the door of delight. Enter, therefore, as a sovereign remedy for the narrowness of our minds and the stinginess of our souls, the formal dinner party for six, eight, or ten chosen guests, the true convivium, the long session that brings us nearly home. The unnecessary is the taproot of our being and the last key to the door of delight. Remember the plot of the youngest tempter. Above all, the door of delight must remain firmly closed. Capon gives instructions for how to choose guests, how to choose a menu, instructions for the vesting of the table and the vesting for the table. Of the choosing of guests, 
he writes this. For the first, have at least one solidly personal reason for inviting whomever you call to your table. And be sure that the reason looks chiefly outward at your guest and not inward at yourself. To ask a man to break bread with you is to extend friendship, to proclaim in love that you want not his, but him. He describes the dinner party and he proscribes the dinner party um, in contra what I guess must have been the trend in the late 60s of cocktail parties. And he talks about this sense of heightened homelessness that you have at a cocktail party. You don't know who to talk to, you don't know where to go, or there's nowhere to sit down. There may not be food coming. And it's really just a guise for networking. (laughs) Not cocktail parties then, but dinner parties. Jesus himself ate a feast of utmost significance with a gathering of 12 chosen friends. In that meal, he laid aside his glory again and took the role of a servant, washing feet. It is this very friendship, this intimacy, that we are invited to join For this is more fully a biblical vision of feasting. Strangers are invited to the meal, are received as friends, are given a place at the table. Feasting, if it is to be more than mere gourmandise, and hospitality, if it is going to be more than merely entertaining, requires our true delight in each not yet fully discovered person. And this is an attitude to cultivate, an attitude of welcome, an outward-looking attentiveness. For even our spouses, our children, our friends remain strangers to us people bearing gifts they can only reveal under the loving gaze of delight and curiosity, gifts they can only reveal perhaps after they are well fed. Why feast? (coughs) To fling wide the door of delight to all who will partake. Feast because Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Because for all that is wrong, there is yet good in this world. Because, as Capon puts it, The whole marvelous collection of stones, skins, feathers, and string exists because at least one lover has never quite taken his eye off it. Because the Dominus Vivificans 
has his delight with the sons of men. Feast because there is variety and abundance and our duty is to delight in the generosity of God and to spend ourselves on the preciousness of the world. Feast because we need to remember our belonging in the fellowship of being and our unique and beloved identity as image bearers of that one attentive lover. Feast because Jesus himself feasted and gave us wine by which to remember and anticipate him. Feast because while we live in the shadow of the fall, the time is coming when shadow and dark and hiddenness will be no more. Feast then in hope. And these are words from the end of Revelation, the end of the whole story of Scripture. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. Capon says, we are great friend. We shall not be saved for trampling that greatness underfoot. Come then, leap upon these mountains, skip upon these hills and heights of the earth. The road to heaven does not run from the world, but through it. The longest session of all is no discontinuation of these sessions here, but a lifting of them all by priestly love. It is a place for men, not ghosts, for the risen gorgeousness of the new earth and for the glorious earthiness of the true Jerusalem. Eat well, then. Between our love and his priesthood, he makes all things new. Our last home will be home indeed. All this, and I have not said anything about cooking, per se. okay okay you say food was and is meant to be good fast and feast find your place in the fellowship of created things meal by meal I still don't know how to cook to be honest I don't really like to cook now what well just as our troubles with eating are as varied as we are 
So too, I imagine, are our troubles with cooking. You can only begin where you are, so you may need to survey the scene to discover the nature of your resistance or your helplessness or self-proclaimed hopelessness in the kitchen. Kaybon has something to say about this predicament as well. Technique must be acquired. And with technique, a love of the very process of cooking. No artist can work simply for results. He must also like the work of getting them. Not that there isn't a lot of drudgery in any art, and more in cooking than most, but that if a man has never been pleasantly surprised at the way custard sets or flour thickens, there is not much hope of making a cook of him. <laughs> Pastry and confectionery will remain forever beyond him, and he will probably never even be able to get gravy to come out the same twice. Interest in results never conquers boredom with process. For all that, however, boredom is not unconquerable. Delight in the act of cooking is one of the oldest and nearest things in the world. We have not made mud pies for nothing. <laughs> If a cook is willing simply to look at what he is doing, there is hope. And if he should ever be fascinated by the fact that cornstarch and flour do the same thing differently, there is more than hope. There is a slight but distinct foretaste of victory. So I do not want to send you away empty-handed when it comes to cooking. So I will commend to you three skills which... I recommend you go and learn. You could choose one and learn to do it well. And if you master only one of these, you will have accomplished a great good. And it will be a gift to many. They are salad dressing, a vinaigrette specifically, bread and soup. And with these three skills... Uh, you could feed yourself for days with endless variety. And you could create both meals suitable for a fast or a feast. The first time I saw someone make a salad dressing from scratch was, I was in college, and my best friend at the time was majoring in French, and so she took a semester abroad Um, to become more fluent, and she lived in a little suburb of Paris. And I went to visit her there after my semester had ended. And I remember sitting in this tiny, cramped little kitchen that was the shared kitchen for all the international teachers at her school. There was a Russian teacher and there was a Spanish teacher. The Spanish teacher's parents had just been to visit and had left a leg of pig that was hanging on the door of the kitchen. She was like, cut a piece off and eat it. Well, um, my friend Rachel 
had a little bowl, and she took uh, olive oil, and she had cider vinegar. I have balsamic here. You could do either. Um, Dijon mustard, honey, salt, and pepper. And she whisked up this lovely salad dressing. So I am going to demonstrate how to do that. If you've never made a vinaigrette, you will now know how to do that. And when you're at a friend's, you can like, or you're invited to dinner, just like offer to bring the salad, bring the salad, and make your own dressing for it. Um, before I show you how to make a vinaigrette, I will um, say a few things about salad generally. <laughs> Some of you know how opinionated I am about salad. Um, if you do not own a salad spinner, put it on your birthday wish list. <laughs> Other than a good knife and maybe a cast iron pan, like this is an essential kitchen tool. Uh, the reason a salad spinner is so good, actually you can accomplish the same thing with a pillowcase. <laughs> but you might not want to do that in the winter. So um, the salad spinner is this lovely contraption, a plastic bowl with um, like a, what do you call it, like a sieve that fits inside of it and a thing that kind of pumps or spins on the top. Cut your greens before you put them in. If you're using kale, take the rib out of the kale, the stem, and chop that up on the fine side. Um, put all your greens in the salad spinner, fill it with cold water and let it sit while you do other things so that the greens can rinse and crisp in, in the water. And then dump the water, put them back in and pump like mad until the greens are dry. They need to be dry. If they are wet, you will have a soggy salad and nobody likes that. You do not like that. Don't make that for anyone. Um, if they are dry, the vinaigrette that you make will also stick to the greens beautifully. And you will dress it to coat but not float <laughs> your salad. <clears throat> a few other tips that really are just my preferences and opinions, <laughs> but you can try them out and see what you think. I recommend the harmonious quartet of fresh greens, a toasted nut for crunch, a cheese for a bit of funk and savor. Feta is nice if you like the saltiness. Goat cheese is especially wonderful. Blue cheese if you are a hearty soul. Capon has gotten into my head. <laughs> um, and uh, finally, something on the sweeter side. Maybe a fruit, apple or pear is always nice. Strawberry in season, perhaps. Or if you want to caramelize your nuts with some sugar and cinnamon, then you get a bit of sweetness there. There are other vegetables that are very sweet. Roasted sweet potatoes are lovely in a salad or even beets. When it comes to making a dressing, the Italians have this idiom. They say, it takes four men to dress a salad, 
a wise man for the salt, a madman for the pepper, a miser for the vinegar, and a spendthrift for the oil. If that isn't descriptive enough for you to accomplish making a a vinaigrette, you might try Julia Child's ratio of three parts oil, olive oil, use a good olive oil. The greener the olive oil, um, the better it is for a dressing. Um, If it's extra virgin olive oil, it's meant for colder temperatures. It's not meant to be cooked at high temperatures with that. So keep your green olive oil for your dressings. Three parts oil to one part vinegar. But, she says, you must establish your own relationship with the vinegar and oil ratio. You might like it a little bit tangier. You'll have to sort that out. So, um, I also recommend a mason jar. It's very easy, easy to store. Also easy to measure this three parts to one part thing. And you can just use your fingers if they're of roughly the same thickness. (laughs) (laughs) So that's about, it's a little much, but about three fingers of olive oil and another finger of vinegar. Madman for the pepper. Miser for the salt. Wise man salt. Thank you. Miser for the vinegar. And that's it. Unless you like honey, like I do. Um, one, two, three. A three-count squeeze. <laughs> and Dijon mustard. The mustard actually really helps it uh, emulsify, like to become, to stay together, to not separate again. Mm, roughly a teaspoon. And then you shake it up, and that's it. So... Uh, there's a good argument to be made simply for the economy of making your own salad dressings. Um, the amount of money that people spend filling their pocket, fridge pockets with all of the dressing options, uh, it needn't be so. So, there you go. Now you know how to make your own vinaigrette. You can do it with cider vinegar, um, you can try putting the jam in there if you want a fruitier taste. There are many possibilities. <clears throat> Bread, I have fed you with the rationale for learning to make bread. And I won't say more about that here. Bread is its own um, wonderful and world, wonderful world. Um, but I will say that bread is just the epitome of um, the goodness of simplicity. What you ate was water, flour, and salt, and this lovely, mysterious yeast that floats around in our environment and and joins these things. That's all, and time and heat.
Finally, soup. Soup is is perhaps the dish par excellence for generous hospitality. Um, it's a meal that epitomizes the fact that, as Capon writes, things are precious before they are contributory, but they are still contributory. How precious the onion as an onion. How generous the onion as the first entrant into the hot olive oil. Sizzling and caramelizing and creating the foundation for layer upon layer of flavor. The soup pot, I think, um, speaks to us of the real possibility of redemption and transformation. How many limp celery stalks and Parmesan rinds have avoided the compost heap or the garbage can and landed in a clean-out-the-refrigerator soup, which is what my mother used to call it. And I think from soup, we can see something of the nature of friendship. And I don't remember where he says this. Somebody probably remembers. But C.S. Lewis writes on, um, in grief, on the loss of a friend. And when I lose that friend, I lose that friend. And I lose what that friend brought out of this friend. And what that person brought out of me. And the soup pot speaks to us of something of that nature of fellowship, that we are ourselves, and together we are something more than ourselves as well. Soup also uh, reminds us of the goodness of rest. Soup, almost always, is better the next day. We spoke today at lunch about um, the merits of taking a nap. Sometimes we need to remember it is good to simply rest. Um, I am going to stop there. I'm very um, mindful of all of the avenues we could, could travel in talking about food, so I want to give plenty of time for conversation about any of this or about things that I didn't touch on at all. If you have not been here before, or even if you just need the reminder, you are free to head out at any point, Um, but we'll talk and um, discuss things as long as you'd like, and um, yeah, there's plenty to disagree with, I imagine, there's a lot of um, uh, not really up-to-date advice in Cape On about how to eat, so I'm curious um, how that sits with you, but yeah, over to you.
watching, I'm also looking for something. Yeah. Do you have any poets and poetry that you feel captured some of these things? About food in particular? Um, I can think of individual poems. Shared a poem about onions with the group here. Um, It's a poem called The Traveling Onion by Naomi Shayab. Shayab Lee. Is that how you say it? I never remember how to say it. Shayab Nye, I think. Um, Can you think of any poems? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe you should do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have. I actually. I wish I had thought to bring it down here. I do have a little volume of poems, collect a collection um, poems for the table that have mm-hmm. different, yeah, poems about different foods, different poems that are prayers. Glad you reminded me of that, actually. Yeah. Yeah, Ben. Could you? Um, I, I embarrassed because I've heard about this book for so long and I've never, never read it and everybody tells me that I should read it. So someday I'm sure I will. Um, but, uh, and I, I appreciate his way of communicating the quotes that you've read. Uh, that you've read. Um, it seems like he's, he's sort of a, I don't know if he's actually a poet, but he has a, a very... There's a poetic sensibility yeah, for a poetic sure. Sensibility, yeah. Um, but I, I uh, was wondering if you could flesh out a little bit more what it means that that fasting and feasting are entrance into the suburb of the Lamb. I guess I mean, maybe this is something that's very, very clear in the book, but, mm-hmm. but um, is, it, is it that... The contrast in, in just ordinary li- in, in life, the contrast between <clears throat> eating simply or going without a meal, and then the feast um, pr- prepares us in some way to anticipate the. the or, or what, what exactly is the, mm-hmm. Does he mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. does he mean when he says it's the entrance, or even the key to the door of delight, or, or yeah. Um, yeah. Any, any further thoughts on that? I yeah, guess, yeah. <laughs> well, he does. He does say um, of fasting that um, it's the entrance. It, or it, yeah, I'd have to look again at the exact quote, but um, it, basically, he um, advocates for it as a way of remembering and and embodying the fact that things are not yet as they should be. And the only one who can really solve the deepest problems is Jesus, who has done it and will do it in full um, and restore all things to what they are meant to be. And so, um, I yeah, I think I think there's something of um, we fast because things are not yet right, and we should not del- delude ourselves that things are just fine, um, and that. We, yeah, and we should also feast because, um, yeah, things, things could be much worse. (laughs) And, um, there is a, 
a lover who is has gone and is going the full lengths to bring about the redemption that we long for. Um, so I think it's a, a way of embodying our limitation, our not godness, <laughs> um, by by having this rhythmed um, way of eating. Um, yeah, are there other thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think he also, I mean, I think you touched on it. He, mm-hmm. he talks about um, like readying your taste buds mm-hmm. for the banquet or the mm-hmm. supper of the land. So that's how it's an entrance too. It's like mm-hmm. you're, mm-hmm. you're preparing yourself. You're like practicing the feast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to do that every day mm-hmm. um, because of the limitations, because things are yeah. not yet as they should be. But mm-hmm. he talks about like, yeah, preparing yourself. Mm-hmm. By practicing the mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. getting yourself ready, getting your taste buds ready yeah. for what's to come. Yeah, yeah, and that fasting uh, plays its part in the meals that we eat now. Um, you know, he <laughs> he laments the fact that um, we often don't come hungry enough mm-hmm. to the meals that have been labored over and put before us, and uh, you know we're quick to take the edge off our hunger. Uh, and yeah, and I mean, that has challenged me even this week to, to pay attention to like, am I ever hungry? No. Really? No, um, and <laughs> yeah, and I, I think, um, because, well, I, I find myself sort of pinched between, yeah, a time of abundance and a, a culture of abundance and sort of this like, you shouldn't eat three square meals a day. You should actually eat five small meals a day and sort of like keep the steady flow of fuel going, um, which might, maybe that is good nutritional advice. Um, I don't know if it's the best advice overall. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I've noticed our daughter Lily will be five in a couple of weeks. And I don't know if she has ever experienced hunger because when she, maybe what she is experiencing hunger, uh, but her response is profoundly dramatic, like, I'm starving, I'm so hungry. And it, it strikes me that it must be a very foreign feeling to her to experience something of hunger, to have such a big response. Um, so, I have felt challenged by that, that um, piece of, yeah, thinking about maybe the role that hunger could play (laughs) in my life. Yeah, Dick. Yeah, I'm struggling with how to ask this, and it won't come out the way I want to, but uh, I don't want to go back to your, what the devil is trying to do to us in terms of leading us into an asceticism guided by spirituality or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, I, I struggle to know how, you know, there's millions of people in the world with not enough to eat. Mm-hmm. And uh, we can rejoice in this, the plenty that we enjoy, and mm-hmm. we're surely meant to rejoice in the plenty that we enjoy. But how do we hold this together? Yeah. Without sort of, um, certainly, being generous with our food mm-hmm. and, and everything else we have, 
I feel a tension there. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I don't want to go back to the early days of a Beth's feast. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and think that they've got the answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and yet, uh, on the other hand, with the just just the celebration of the, the fullness, I wonder mm-hmm. where where does our awareness of what's going on in the world mm-hmm. fit in? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think this is another thing that our fasting can give us back is our awareness that not everybody has what we have and in fact maybe most people don't and certainly most people across time um, didn't and um, so yeah I see this pairing of feasting and fasting really in his definition you know it's like fasting is ordinary eating (laughs) and this is something that I think we could do to recover like do we even eat ordin- ordinarily <laughs> now? Or is, I mean, I think of, um, yeah, just like how easy it is to have far more than we need. And um, and I, I certainly uh, I think I have to confess, like, my bent <laughs> toward, like, we should have every meal together, and every meal should be special. And, uh, you know, that <laughs> togetherness supreme. Um, and, and I need the fast <laughs> to cleanse my palate, um, in, in all of the senses. And I also, what else, another thing that comes to mind is, you know, um, forget where I read this recently, but it, it was, I think it was actually a meditation on, um, sort of the, that we should, that we should be joyful. (laughs) There is much to be joyful about and to sort of cloak our happiness with, um, sort of, I think what can easily be a false sorrow and sense of guilt that we have more than others is, is both an affront to our joy and an affront to their suffering. Um, and one of the examples that I came across was, um, you know, a person who, you know, has, has lost their home, say, maybe is, um, in, in a, uh, is a refugee, um, you know, like how good it is for them to be welcomed in to a home that you clearly love <laughs> and for you to love your home less isn't an encouragement to them. Oh good. I'm glad they don't care about their home because I lost mine. Does that make sense? You know, and I, I think there's something of that with our, our feasting too, <laughs> that, um, yeah, it should not be every meal every day. And maybe that's some of the problem with our our current norms. Are there other thoughts on this? Dynamic, yeah. I don't know if he the book if he addressed at all. Um, and I think this is stereotypical, but probably actually realistic that a lot of times cooking is a drudgery for women in particular. Yeah. Most men too. Mm-hmm. And so the idea of feasting is like, you know, mm-hmm. I can barely do the ordinary. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, or, or just that 
mm-hmm. Martha Stewartism and, and just mm-hmm. kind of that trap of, um, mm-hmm. you know, trying to be the perfect mom, the perfect wife, the perfect hostess. You know, yeah. Kind of yeah. And that when you're talking yeah. about reclaiming joy mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, as an antidote. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, he does not address it directly, and he wrote it in 1967. And um, so there are definitely some of, there are, there's some genderedness to the way that he writes about it. But he clearly loves cooking himself, you know, so he's not, like, expecting these grand things from his wife who's slaving alone in the kitchen or something. Um, but, uh, yeah, he doesn't address that himself, but I, too, have thought that, that often... Um, the the burden for feeding a family falls along gender lines to women, and it it certainly needn't be so. I would say it shouldn't be so. Um, but sometimes that's what works in a home too, or like how how to share that. I think is one of the creative tasks <laughs> of of every home. And to find ways that that can be entered into with joy. The Friedrichs have guilt-free fast food night. Yeah, we do. And (laughs) I think that that's wonderful. (laughs) And, I mean, I have certainly, um, not so much to be like Martha Stewart, you know, front cover of Living Magazine motivation, but... Um, more because I think I got pretty obsessed with everything being made from scratch. <laughs> that it, I had sort of lost, it had fallen off of my mental map that I could order a pizza. Like I had to make it, which I love to make pizza, and I make good pizza. But when we moved here, I remember distinctly feeling very overwhelmed one day, this, that, I don't know what to make for dinner and Michaela was like, why don't you call Domino's? And it felt like a revelation. <laughs> I could... Really? Can I really do that? Um, so I think we have to have space for that in, in our homes and in ourselves. <laughs> and I like what he says about breakfast. Like, cut yourself a slice of bread. Or, you know, <laughs> you don't have to. Yeah. Could you tell us the name of that book again? You said it was... Oh, thank you. The Supper of the Lamb. I had another thought, actually, Dick, in response to your question, and I wanted to tell people about these cookbooks, too. Um, the Mennonite Central Committee has um, a trio of cookbooks, starting with the book More With Less, um, another one called Extending the Table, and this one is Simply in Season. And this one is uh, grouped, arranged by season, and so um, the recipes are all using what for, for this region of the world would be seasonally available. Um, and then more with less and Extending the Table have global recipes and really beautiful um, and um, kind of enlightening reflections before each section of the cookbook that I think kind of get you in touch with 
the fact that not everybody eats the way we eat or how much we eat. I personally have suspicions about our obsession with protein and, um, you know, or like, and then finding alternative sources <laughs> to protein, um, that it doesn't need to be a meat source. And, yeah, being aware of the way in which, um, how our diet, our diet, I mean, our norms, um, ends up perpetuating a lot of these inequalities globally. And it feels at times like a drop in the bucket, but I don't know really where else to start personally, but to be like, well, I'm buying the groceries, so maybe we will eat meat less. Maybe um, we will eat less, period. That's the scarier one. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Mm-hmm. No. But these cookbooks, I think, are great. The recipes themselves are great. The food is delicious. Everything I've cooked from this, I've liked. Um, but it's by a group, a Mennonite group, that work very closely in many parts of the world with um, yeah, people who don't have access to nearly as much as we do. Yes, Marty. Oh, I was going to say, on, on breakfast, um, <laughs> both Dick and I have found we actually, and we've been told by physicians, but also in our experience, that we actually need protein at breakfast. Mm-hmm. That you, that in, in other words, the cup of coffee and the slice of bread mm-hmm. really isn't enough. I mean, it puts you back to sleep. It puts us back to mm-hmm. sleep. Mm-hmm. And so just the, the, um, the sort of balance of where health, real mm-hmm. health issues Come in mm-hmm. to, uh, mm-hmm. and, and obviously people are different from each other. But yeah. but the, the very unhealthy pattern of the way so many Americans eat, which is to eat very little, substantial at breakfast, mm-hmm. and then um, eat junk stuff because it, because they're hungry sooner, mm-hmm. and just mm-hmm. eat junky stuff mm-hmm. to fill up rather than having something that's. Um, yeah. My father used to. <laughs> my father was a menace in the kitchen, um, because he. I mean, he would get. He, he believed in a really solid breakfast, mm-hmm. and he would he would get when he was visiting us. Dick would always try to get down to the kitchen first because he, <laughs> to get breakfast on because Daddy would go down and he'd make hot cereal and eggs and pots of tea and prunes, stewed prunes. <laughs> and, I mean, just this massive, All that. massive yeah. breakfast. Um, we don't do that. Mm-hmm. But we have discovered, in fact, for for years, Dick never had an egg at breakfast, and, mm-hmm. and a nutritionist said mm-hmm. he was dealing with some blood sugar issues. You, mm-hmm. you know, have an egg for breakfast. Mm-hmm. He found oh, really made a difference. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I eat an egg better. almost every day yeah. for breakfast. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I do. Um, if I don't, yeah. I have, mm-hmm. you know, lots of nut, hot cereal with lots of mm-hmm. nuts, and it's something that's mm-hmm. even more substantial mm-hmm. than just a cup of coffee and a piece of bread. But anyway, that was my only thought. At breakfast, mm-hmm. I thought, eh. I can I can associate I can um, um I guess I'll say when we left when we moved away from here and bought mm-hmm. our first house in our sixties when we had to make space for a younger family mm-hmm. I said to Dick there's a lot of, a lot of things I really miss about being in Libri but you know what one thing I don't miss 
is having 18 people for breakfast. <laughs> so can we eat alone? But as we were doing a lot of breakfasts toward, yeah. toward the end of our time here. Mm-hmm. You know, I really don't miss having 18 mm-hmm. people for breakfast. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I can sort of relate to that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm going to just make one comment. Yeah. Um, uh, we have talked about trying to do the eat breakfast like a king, lunch like a prince, and dinner like a pauper mm-hmm. idea. Um, and I think our work and lifestyle could actually make that possible. Yeah. But I don't think that's very realistic for most people mm-hmm. who need to be out the door, right. you know, and making a commute at 6 a.m. Like, they're not eating like a king mm-hmm. at that hour. Um, so... Yeah, I I agree, and I think ultimately everybody sort of needs to work out what really works um, for you. And I think there's a lot of flexibility within this fasting and feasting paradigm to understand how or why you would make those choices. Yeah, just to that point, I um, the Lord has designed us so well um, our bodies to respond differently however is appropriate to the food that we're eating Um, and I just I think there's so much distraction in both in the way we eat and the way that our bodies like we're just we've kind of dematerialized Mm -hmm. Um, and if we are more conscious both of what we eat and what our bodies do with what we eat, how we feel later. Like, you mm-hmm. discover things like, I need, I need protein and fat in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, and I need, I need vegetables mm-hmm. and, you mm-hmm. know, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I just, I'm very thankful for that aspect mm-hmm. of the way that we were designed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Dave? I've never asked this in a lecture before, but another loaf everybody Yeah, yeah, yeah. But do a little oil and vinegar dipping bowls too. Pass the honey. I know. Andrea. Yeah. So Sarah shared this book with me before, and um, I have really enjoyed um, the permission to allow it to be good, and sort of that sense of it is meant to be good, and over the past few months just realizing what I'm eating and what I'm intaking and then savoring it and making, you know, making something and just that it's brought um, God's goodness to life and his um, sweetness um, in, a, in a fresh new perspective that I hadn't mm-hmm. connected God in, in food in that way and we eat so much of it and so um, just being able to see him so frequently um, through what I'm through what I'm doing, which has been just helpful. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Um, so, preface is that I totally agree with what you're saying about when 
if you live alone and you're eating by mm-hmm. yourself, you know, there's nothing that's wrong with that. that that's mm-hmm. what life is. Mm-hmm. Um, today I was seeing a patient in her home who lives in an apartment, and uh, she had very <coughs> severe um, social anxiety and didn't ever leave her home. And she hadn't been outside of her apartment in three weeks, even mm-hmm. stepped outside mm-hmm. of the door threshold. And, mm-hmm. um, she was talking to me. It's interesting you say that mm-hmm. about eating for one. Mm-hmm. She was bringing that up with me about how it's the loneliest part of her day, even mm-hmm. though she's by herself 24 hours a day. But when it's mealtime, mm-hmm. like that's when she feels the most lonely. Right. And um, I think those of us who have families and uh, like noise and commotion with meal mm-hmm. um, it can be easy to not contemplate the people who just crave mm-hmm. some of that commotion mm-hmm. with the, that comes along with a meal yeah yeah and I, I think that's another reason to look for opportunities to invite people yeah. into our homes and to let it be a mess you know, and it, even if it falls to the woman to make the meal, like it can be a simple meal, and you know, it's great to pull out tablecloths. It's great to just offer yourself to people and to share what you have. And so, I think when um, when perfectionism is stopping us from welcoming people like there's another idolatry at work there you know um but yeah i think you're right and it helps me to reframe the commotion Mm -hmm. (laughs) in my own life um with more thankfulness Mm -hmm. commotion yeah Yeah. Um, i can't remember who told me because i think it was a korean woman but she was speaking about how wonderful Korean food is and how wonderful Indian food is, all these foods I love. Mm-hmm. But the history of why they're so wonderful and time-consuming is mm-hmm. because women were not allowed out. Mm-hmm. And basically it was women in hot kitchens all day long who weren't allowed to do it, really had mm-hmm. no options to do anything else, developed wonderful food. Mm-hmm. But it was... <laughs> mm-hmm. at a huge cost. Mm-hmm. They literally were not out... Not allowed to be out where there are men in the streets. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's an irony um, to that, like that women um, have been the engines of um, food production in the home, but um, in the restaurant chefs world, are men. chefs are men. Oh, yeah, well it's actually another awesome thing about Babette's Feast. <laughs> it's a woman chef. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's... And injustice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I think that can be a cool opportunity just as far as <clears throat> prayer. Um, sometimes when I'm sitting down before a meal that, you know, the meal's roots are in Mexico, say, mm-hmm. it's an opportunity even before the meal to, to pray or mm-hmm. if you've heard of something going on in Mexico to pray mm-hmm. for the border, mm-hmm. to pray for the deserts there or you know you might not know a great deal about the place but it's a, it's a cool opportunity to 
mm-hmm. be thankful for this incredible concoction that you've received mm-hmm. from another culture mm-hmm. to also lift uh, the, the more difficult realities mm-hmm. connected to this food, to lift mm-hmm. that to God in prayer. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm just thinking of what the Apostle Paul said. Um, I think it was when he was talking about the moral issue of eating food offered to idols. Yep. Um, and how he speaks there about the freedom that we have, the fact that idols don't exist, mm-hmm. and that um, there should be a, free, a freedom of conscience mm-hmm. to eat anything. And then mm-hmm. he has this amazing statement, when you go into someone's home, eat what's put before. Eat what's put in front of you. Yeah. Thankful this. That's um. Again, we live in a culture where there are so many. There are there are obviously very clear and real health issues related to food mm-hmm. and allergies and so on. But there are also just uh, it's it's a, the kind of contr- need to control what I eat mm-hmm. is also an idolatry for a lot mm-hmm. of people. And there are just so many food fads. Mm-hmm. We've had <laughs> over the years of being in Libri, working in Libri, we've we've met some amazing food weird. Somebody who came who was on the grape diet. All she ate was grapes. I mean, you can't really live for too long on only eating grapes. No, was that wine or? (laughs) (laughs) But um, but but I think you know, (laughs) a a message to try to try. And I know it's it's Mm -hmm. a great challenge for now that Mm -hmm. I'm not doing this. I do some Mm -hmm. living cooking, but nowhere near as much. Yeah, students come to our home, but the huge challenge for mm-hmm. the Libri cooks, <laughs> yeah, um, the men and the women Libri cooks, mm-hmm. to um, sensitively, delicately mm-hmm. handle that. You know, mm-hmm. when somebody says I'm allergic to broccoli, um, and then it turns out they're not at all allergic to broccoli; they just don't like broccoli. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. And that's yeah. the only thing is there is a quiche. It's got some broccoli that looks really mm-hmm. good, mm-hmm. so we try the broccoli. Yeah. Just dealing with that considerate, considerateness when you're mm-hmm. in, and the fact that Paul says, you know, when you're in someone's home, mm-hmm. eat what's in front of you and give thanks for it. Mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. That's that's going to be a, a good lesson for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that whole past chapter eight of First Corinthians is one that I've been reading and rereading, mm-hmm. and I, uh, I want to do a deeper study yep. of this yep. because I think that. Um, the reality is there are so many idolatries um, at play in in our, our food stuff and um, and what has really um, struck me is how he prefaces dealing with this is you know the uh, we know that all of us possess knowledge this knowledge puffs up but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. And that in and of itself, I'm like, what a funny way (laughs) to start addressing food issues. Um, So I want to think about that more. I will say, just in regards to the fads, (laughs) um, yeah, this whole lecture has had me thinking about, like, 
You know, eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was like the first bad fad diet. (laughs) Where I just eat this one thing. There's so many things that I could eat, but this thing will solve the problem that I think I have. Yeah. Um, So uh, there's something about thinking of it in that way that um, gives me a bit, I don't know, something of a more grace even in the way that we fall prey to fads um, around food. And um, and I, I know that yeah, there are many myriad stories really in Labrie around food things. Um, so far, five, what are we, five and a half, six years in, my experience has been largely like those who have real dietary limitations are so thankful yeah. when when anything is done to be helpful and to include people in that meal because i think when that's a reality for you you're constantly navigating exclusion and what you can't do and so to have the freedom to be i can eat this yeah. um i remember a woman <clears throat> who was here from she was here from texas and I think she had been diagnosed celiac mm-hmm. and, but then other things too, like there was a yeast thing. I mean, it was, there was a lot in the mix. And uh, she cried at a couple meals because she could eat it. Right. Um, and she lamented the fact that communion is not, bread and wine right. are not things that she can yeah. partake of. Um, and just this sense of mm-hmm. uh, constantly being alienated from. Mm-hmm that fellowship this is why we fast as well because <laughs> these are realities um, that are with us Dave um, going back to Babette's Feast mm-hmm. um, it seems in the film it's been a little while since I watched it but it's a lot of Ecclesiastes in that yeah, film yeah from the mirror we've been and, yeah. wanting to yeah, oh, yeah. talk to you about it course, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, it's, yeah it seems like there's a um bit of a contrast with Catholicism and Protestantism, yeah. which I, I think I remember reading the director, um, that's part of his own journey, he was, mm-hmm. he, he knew something of both worlds, he grew up in Denmark, I think, mm-hmm. and, but also lived in France, and so this, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. Um, seemed like he was maybe working something of that out in his movie, mm-hmm. um, and <laughs> in that, that the Catholic side seemed to be more at home with eating well and yeah. um, and not feeling guilty about it, where in the Protestant world it was, mm-hmm. there's a struggle. And mm-hmm. I wondered, you know, I, in my perception, at least being from the Protestant world, we've had to give ourselves more justification to see why food is good, and yeah. which I think are all good reasons. Mm-hmm. But I'm wondering, have, have you come across that in your readings at all, mm-hmm. or could, there, could you see a reason within Protestantism that would make it's hard for us to accept just the simple mm-hmm. goodness of food and delighting in it and mm-hmm. feasting. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it's a great question. Um, I, I suspect there's something to do with the understanding of sacrament in Catholic, Catholic um, theology and um, yeah, more of a 
both um, a way of life that's liturgically shaped and experientially shaped, um, or liturgically and experientially shapes the way the body's <laughs> related to in dailiness as well. Um, but yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I imagine that's part of it. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, at the Reformation, one of the common complaints about the place becoming Protestant was that you miss all these saints' days where you could not go to work and you could sit and feast. Catholic was known for faith, for saints this and saints that mm-hmm. and everything, and, and celebrating everything and not. Well, I, obviously they got a lot of work done too, but, but uh, the, the, in some people's minds, the Protestantism meant more, uh, more of an austere. I mean, mm-hmm. Calvin didn't have a whole lot of bank holidays in Geneva. So, but that was the, the, the Catholic spirituality had much more, mm-hmm. more, more room for celebration mm-hmm. and things like that. Mm-hmm. That, that uh, took Protestantism a while more, I think. Yeah. Get that, but I think it's, it's still a different. You think of some Catholicism being very austere and ascetic, which some of it was. Yeah. Yeah. But, but uh, much of the late medieval time was was pretty um, loose. And I mean, you think of Luther traveling to Rome and his experience in Rome, which blew him away as a, before he his real conversion, yeah. mm-hmm. and he's really freaking out by the worldliness and the, mm-hmm. just the. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Yeah, I wonder if it's like it could have been like an overreaction, mm-hmm. the opulence and mm-hmm. extravagance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, expecting it. This is not a fully formed thought, but I, I wonder too how much of it is less a Catholic. I mean, it'd be interesting to know what you know contemporary Catholics would say to that, um, but something about the change in the way we understand time and and this is something that I think liturgical traditions can sort of give back to us um, is an understanding of time that isn't yeah shaped so much by nine to five <laughs> five days a week weekend you know even how how holidays are shaped by Madison Avenue, you know, versus um, the the location of, of time within God's story in the world, and that's rehearsed more in liturgical traditions than I think it is in many Protestant traditions. Not all, but yeah. It's Halloween and Christmas. That's how it is. Right. <laughs> yeah. And my, I, I seem to remember, I'm coming with Brian, but I think the New England Puritans, I think they didn't even believe in like celebrating a special Christmas day. Mm-hmm. You, the, mm-hmm. the whole every day is the Lord's day, right? And, and so there was kind of a resistance to yep. to making having special days. Um, yeah. Am I right about? Yeah. yeah, I think you are right. Yeah. yeah. It was illegal in Massachusetts to celebrate Christmas for quite some time. Yeah, it was yeah, against the law. Did you learn that at Old Sturbridge Village? Um, no, but I okay. read it about it in the Boston Globe, which I really okay. fascinating article about. Yeah, from that period to starting to celebrate and this tension yeah. around it, and then now it's fully right. embraced, even maybe beyond. Mm-hmm. And even mm-hmm. weddings. I mean, weddings were mm-hmm. were um, they were, 
for the Puritans, they were they were not church events; they were mm-hmm. state events. Um, you, it was a state thing, and usually you you know you got, might get married on Monday and you're back at the farm on Tuesday. Mm-hmm. You know, none of these long <laughs> the idea of a honeymoon or yeah. going uh, making a big mm-hmm. festive deal of it was mm-hmm. not. Of course, mm-hmm. the farm had to keep going, mm-hmm. so you know, mm-hmm. and you sort of yeah. the daughter just went from her father's farm to her husband's farm. <laughs> And, mm-hmm. and kept farming, mm-hmm. you know, the day after the yeah. mm-hmm. end. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm going to end with a prayer. Oh Lord, refresh our sensibilities. Give us this day our daily taste. Restore to us soups that spoons will not sink in and sauces which are never the same twice. Raise up among us stews with more gravy than we have bread to blot it with, and casseroles that put starch and substance in our limp modernity. Take away our fear of fat and make us glad of the oil which ran upon Aaron's beard. Give us pasta with a hundred fillings and rice in a thousand variations. Above all, give us grace to live as true men and women, to fast till we come to a refreshed sense of what we have, and then to dine gratefully on all that comes to hand. Drive far from us, O most bountiful, all creatures of air and darkness. Cast out the demons that possess us. Deliver us from the fear of calories and the bondage of nutrition and set us free once more in our own land where we shall serve thee as thou hast blessed us with the dew of heaven, the fatness of the earth, and plenty of corn and wine. Amen. Amen.